Have your Bibles, please open them again at uh, Romans chapter 10, from verse 5 down to verse 13, where Paul's telling us that uh, although many in his day have made uh, salvation a complex matter, it is in fact near to them. Uh, It's on their lips. It's something which is extended to all. Many of the world's religions... Uh, are religions, uh, in fact all of them by Christianity, are religions of works. Uh, Buddhism is a very, regarded as a, as a very cool religion today. Uh, you know, you, you can't go into a, a nursery, uh, for example, uh, and buy plants uh, without being confronted by a row of these uh, kind of cuddly Buddhas on the shelf. Uh, people's gardens are filled with them. Uh, you go to a hotel where they maybe have a spa or some, uh, you know, health therapy, and they'll have a picture of Buddha advertising the the, uh, the peace and well-being that is being offered by the hotel. And the religion is based on uh, the notion that our basic problem is clinging on to things which are are fleeting, which is certainly part of the problem. Uh, and the answer uh, that everyone is looking for is nirvana which is uh, a release from that, uh, a release from the, the round of reincarnation, this endless cycle. And that release is gained by holding uh, steadfastly to the teachings of the eight, the noble eightfold path and so on. And, you know, to be quite honest, it's all pretty dark and weary. And if you go to a country like Thailand, where some of you have been and are familiar with, then uh, you realise that uh, despite the, the cool and hip image that uh, Buddhism and Eastern religion have in this country, there's an awful lot of darkness associated with it uh, in its own uh, native turf. Very often there is a fear of, of spirits attached to Buddhism and homes will have little shrines outside uh, to appease the spirits of the dead. Uh, all young people are expected to serve as novice monks Uh, for a year or two, and everybody else is expected to come and to provide for them. And of course, if you you give generously to the monks, then you obtain good karma for the next life. And it's all pretty much a grind. Uh, It's all a dark and weary religion of trying your best, but knowing that you're going to go into another round where you're going to have to try harder. Uh, And all religions, including distortions of Christianity, become like that, become an exercise in doing the best that they can, but really uh, with little prospect of achieving the end. To put it into the language Paul is using here, it's based on the righteousness based on the law rather than a righteousness based on faith. The verses that we're looking at this morning form a key passage. Paul has been telling us all along that you can't get to heaven by doing stuff. And that's a hard lesson for us to understand and to respond to. Because we all want to do stuff. We all want to feel that we have earned our way, that we've made our contribution 
to uh, righteousness uh, before God. Paul wants to make it clear again to us this morning that uh, that's not the way of the gospel. But it poses the problem, uh, what must I do? What's involved uh, in my response to the gospel? Is all completely passive? Uh, Is there any merit in the question that they asked on uh, the day of Pentecost? What must I do to be saved? Well, there is a proper response to God's initiative, and the response of faith has a form, and faith takes shape in words, uh, in belief, and people need to know that. What does becoming a Christian involve? And, you know, if somebody uh, was speaking with me about uh, the Lord and and was at that point where they wanted to to trust in Christ, they had a a real understanding, this would certainly be uh, one of the passages that we would turn to and we would read together what you must believe in your heart, what it means to confess Jesus with your mouth. But all the time that we are thinking like that and, and sharing like that, we have to remember that even our faith and our confessing is not merit worthy. We have... Uh, our text here to remind us continually from Ephesians 2 verse 8 that even faith itself is not from ourselves. It is a gift of God. Isn't that amazing? When God saves, he's taking the initiative even in granting faith to his chosen. So we have got nothing to boast about. But from our side of things, there is a response, there's a shape to our Faith in Jesus. And then Paul uh, finishes off by showing that not only is this a a faith that is near to us, a faith that is uh, one that is believed within our hearts and it's on our lips, but because of the simplicity, the nearness of salvation, it is available to all, all who call on the name of God. Of the Lord. So, three points this morning a righteousness that is near, a belief that is confessed, and a salvation that is offered to all. So, first, then, a righteousness that is near. We've already seen that in this context, when we speak about righteousness, we're speaking about a right standing with God. It's a status that we're talking about. Uh, Paul's contrasting two kinds of righteousness. There's a righteousness that always seems to uh, escape us, to elude us. Uh, The righteousness that comes, uh, or could come, uh, potentially, theoretically, could come from keeping the law perfectly. A righteousness that is by the law. And then he contrasts that with uh, the righteousness which is near, which is a righteousness by faith. And Christ has come to bring to an end the notion of acceptance with God by keeping the minutiae of the law. Christ is the end of the law for all who believe, he says in verse 4. Christ is the end of the law. Listen carefully to what this means and to what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that because Jesus has come, there is no place for the commandments. It doesn't mean that uh, God had two tracks 
for salvation. Uh, one in the Old Testament where you could keep the law, and one in the New Testament which was by faith. In Eden, there was a covenant of works. In Eden, if Adam and Eve had perfectly obeyed God's command, they would have lived eternally. But of course they didn't. Since then, every individual who's ever been saved, all our heroes of the faith in the Old Testament, they were saved not because they kept the the law, but they were saved by faith in the promise of God. Yeah? You think about it. Moses, David, Joseph, Daniel, were they saved because they kept the commandments? Or were they saved because they had faith, a prospective faith in the Messiah? Of course they were saved by faith. God has one way of salvation, one means of reconciling people to himself, and that way is the righteousness that is by faith. And the problem, and the reason that Paul now has two kinds of righteousness to contrast is that by the time, by his day, uh, the Jews had actually distorted the law to becoming a means of right standing with God, which it was never intended to be. It was always intended to be a response to uh, grace. And Christ has now fulfilled everything that the law pointed to. He's met the demands of the law uh, so that there is no excuse for trying to obtain our righteousness by the law. Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. Okay, now maybe uh, as I'm saying this, you're uh, already uh, wrestling with a difficulty that we have in these verses. At least I hope you are, because that means that you're still awake. I haven't lost you, that you haven't wandered away. That there is a difficulty in the wording that we have in uh, these verses. Here's the question. If the law itself wasn't intended as a covenant of works, then uh, if the law on Mount Sinai, commandments that God gave, if that was a gracious covenant, why does Paul speak of the righteousness that is by the law? And then quote Leviticus 18, verse 5, the person who does these things will live by them. That sounds a lot like our righteousness through law-keeping, yeah? Uh, Paul uses that same verse from Leviticus in Galatians 3 uh, to typify the outlook that relies on the law for eternal life. Question, why does God, Paul do that if... Keeping the law was never God's design for salvation. What does that verse mean? And this difficulty is added to when Paul uses Old Testament quotations. um, And he's actually uh, using them to, to speak of the nearness of faith. But if you check them out in in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 30 verses 11 to 14, Moses is actually speaking about the, the nearness of the law. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. Paul adds in parenthesis that is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the deep. Parenthesis that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. And back in its first context Moses is saying to the people 
on the threshold of going into the promised land, look, the commandments and stipulations that you've been given by God aren't that complex. They're straightforward. You know the deal. You have them given to you. You don't need to cross the seas or go up or down to get them. You know what God requires. Now, how do we make sense of this? Well, on the one hand, uh, in the first context, when when Paul is, uh, when Moses rather is speaking about uh, the the one who keeps them will live by them, uh, he's speaking about the fact that uh, if you keep, uh, if you observe the commandments, then it will go well with you in the land. Uh, there were blessings and there were cursings that went along with keeping or breaking the law in the land. And so there is that context. Uh, keeping the law uh, in the land of promise uh, is what God requires, and it will go well with the people if they do that. But there's a sense in which uh, it is true, absolutely, literally, that the man who does these things or the person who does these things will have eternal life. It is true. If you keep the law perfectly, you will have eternal life. Yeah? Are we agreed? (laughs) The problem is that no one has ever done that except for Jesus. Jesus is the only one who ever kept the law uh, to the letter. There was nothing that Jesus ever did or thought or said which was against the law. He kept the law absolutely. But as we look at the law, it acts like a mirror to show us our complete dereliction of the law. That's why Jesus, in his use of the law, uh, often spoke uh, mysteriously uh, of getting to heaven by the law. And we wonder, you know, sounds a bit strange. Think of Jesus and the rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus and he says, "Uh, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says pretty much what Moses said. You know the drill. You know the commandments. Keep them. And you have eternal life. Now, that's strange. You know, you, you, I'm sure, and I certainly would, would, would say that. We would say, uh, to have eternal life, you need to trust in Jesus. You need, to, you need to know him as your savior, rather than trust in your works. Why does Jesus say, keep the commandments and you'll have eternal life? Well, the man initially replies superficially and says that he's done that. But when Jesus presses home and then challenges him to give away his goods, and the man begins to be like, oh, oh uh, this is our first commandment uh, breach here because actually these things are, are rather precious to me. They've become a bit of a god. And he goes away sad. And we don't hear any more about him. And we hope that perhaps... Uh, Jesus' work of exposing his uh, inability to keep the law has its end in him trusting in the one who has kept the law in Jesus Christ. Because that's the law's end, to bring us to an end of ourselves that we might trust in Christ, the only law keeper. So once again, the law was not given as a means of salvation. And when people 
do try to keep the law, they get into all kinds of fankles, like poor old Simeon Stylites, 390 to 459 AD. Now, this poor guy had a lot going for him. He was desperately earnest about trying to please God. Uh, And he spent 37 years of his life on top of a stone pillar uh, in Syria, praying and not eating very much. And uh, some of the the, the local herds boys would come and he had a pulley system and would take food up uh, in a basket. And he was there 37 years and he died on top of a 50-foot high pillar. And after Simeon died, there was a spate of uh, copycats so that uh, you could go to this part of the Middle East and uh, everywhere you went, you know, you, 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 you couldn't get around for bumping into these stone pillars with hermits on the top, trying to reach God through the law and striving through this weird kind of monasticism. And Paul's saying, look, it's not like that. It's not far from you. It's not this great human endeavor that you have to make. You don't need to cross the ocean or go down to the depths. And you certainly don't need to live on top of a stone pillar for 37 years. The word of faith is near you. It's on your lips, in your mouth, and in your heart. What is this? Uh, faith that's on our lips and in our heart. It's a belief that must be confessed. And we come to these famous verses in verse 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Praise God. Now, straight away, Paul's not saying that faith is two acts, you know, uh, believing and then confessing. Uh, These are simply two aspects of the one uh, thing, faith. They've got the same content, for example. What's the content? What must I believe? Well, I think straight away it has to be said it's a simple belief. You know, you don't need to Uh, You know, predestination is a biblical doctrine, but you don't need to understand it to become a Christian. Uh, The Trinity is an essential doctrine, but you don't need to understand it. You don't need to have fathomed its depth in order to become a Christian. What are the key contents? Well, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. That means, first of all, that Jesus is God. Because you'll know that the New Testament was written in Greek and the Old Testament in Hebrew, but there was a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And whenever the translators came across the word God, they used the word in Greek, kurios, or Lord. And so when the New Testament writers are picking up on that, they are using the word for Jesus, Lord, that was always used of God in the Old Testament. When they confess Jesus as Lord, they're saying Jesus is God. He is true God. 
That is a fundamental belief that we have as Christians. We believe that Jesus is not just a good man. He's not just a good example. We believe that the one who was born in Bethlehem, in a manger, who died in agony on a cross outside of Jerusalem, uh, was God incarnate. That God came down and took on himself human flesh. Jesus is God. He is Lord. And because he is God, he can save us. True belief is important. If Jesus is not God, then he can't save. Only a divine savior is of any good. Jesus is Lord. He is God. It's also a confession that speaks about the work that Jesus has done. Someone claims to have become Lord. It's because they've won a victory. And so uh, they have... They have the mastery over or the lordship over some other people or some other person. And when we confess Jesus as Lord, we're saying that Jesus has won the victory over all the forces of darkness and sin and hell and death. By his death on the cross, he defeated Satan. He is the victor. He is the Lord. And he offers entry into that victory to all who will believe in him. He is the victor. He has accomplished salvation. He made his cross, his chariot, uh, by which to ride to ultimate lordship over his foes. Jesus is Lord. He's God. He's victor. And also, and this is maybe most obvious, he is the Lord of all who believe. He is our Lord. If you're a Christian, Jesus has to be your master. There is no Christianity, no genuine Christianity, whereby you, you trust in Jesus as Savior and down the line accept him as Lord. If he's not your Lord, if he's not your Savior, we receive him as Lord over every aspect of our lives. We receive him as Lord of our thinking. We learn from him. Whether we acknowledge it or not, all of us take our lead in uh, the things that we think uh, from others. So many in our day take their lead uh, from atheists, for example, who want to exclude God from all discussions of science. So um, everything is in, in the scientific endeavor except the possibility that there's a God uh, who might create the world or might intervene in any way. Or the liberal educator or counsellor who uh, speaks about the inherent goodness of the individual and that the the task of the educator or the counsellor is to get people in touch with their inner self, their inner goodness, to release that. Now, Jesus as our Lord reveals a very different uh, storyline as to what the world is about and about our condition as people and what we need and he is Lord of our thinking we receive him as our teacher he's Lord uh, of our ethics what's the rule for the decisions that we make in life about the sacredness of life about justice sex standards of goodness Jesus is Lord of ethics uh, what about our time How do we prioritize uh, the limited hours we have? How do you spend your leisure time, uh, your holidays, uh, your Sundays? 
Uh, what will you do career-wise? Where are you going to live? How are you going to spend uh, your money? And so on. There's not a single area of our lives over which Jesus is not to be Lord. And we commit to that lordship from the outset. And he is uh, the one whom God has raised from the dead. And we believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead. And in doing so, uh, we believe in the victory of Jesus. The resurrection meant that Jesus had moved from this state of humiliation uh, when uh, he knew pain and loneliness and and sorrow to uh, the one of exaltation. He is risen now in power and glory. Uh, That's why... uh, Protestant churches where there is the cross as an emblem, uh, it's uh, an emptied cross. Our Jesus is no longer suffering. He's no no longer hanging helpless on a cross. He's at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is victorious. And this uh, resurrection speaks of uh, the, the proof that we are now right with God. We have been justified. Romans 4.25. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. We have been made right with God. The the price was paid. How do we know? The price was accepted because God raised Jesus from the dead on the third day. He was raised for our justification. These are truths, friends, that every Christian believes. This is basic Christianity. Christianity 101. This is not, uh, you know, the, the higher grade religion. This is entry-level Christianity. Faith has a content. It's anchored in something solid. And what you believe, you confess What's in here must come out. That's always true. Uh, Some of the people in the New Testament who tried to keep quiet about their faith eventually spoke out. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night for fear of the Jews, but eventually we find him speaking out amongst the Jewish council and going with Joseph of Arimathea uh, to give Jesus a burial. Either secrecy will kill discipleship, Our discipleship will kill secrecy. But you cannot remain quiet about Christian, about being a Christian. To be a follower of Jesus means standing up for him by church membership, baptism, Lord's Supper, by being open at your workplace or in the school, you're a follower of Jesus, by the way you live by things that are kind of common and ordinary, saying grace over your meal when you're in the restaurant, when there's lots of people around you who never do that kind of thing. Confessing with your lips goes with believing in your heart. And salvation, this salvation that's believed and confessed is offered to everyone. Offered to everyone. As the scripture says, everyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul has been stressing how simple salvation is. It really is. 
You know the message. It's in your Bible. You've heard of it in church. And uh, if you've never heard it before, then you've heard it this morning. You don't have to build yourself a 50-foot stone pillar and stand on top of it for 37 years or do anything stupid like that. You believe in Jesus, that he is Lord, he's God, he's victor. Receive him as Lord. You believe in his resurrection. You believe that you've been made right with God. It's simple. It's straightforward. You don't need to kind of brush up on your Bible knowledge until you reach a certain level, and then you can trust in Jesus. You don't need to know that you're one of the elect. How do I know if I'm chosen or not? You don't need to beat yourself up about that. The Bible never says, first find out if you're one of the elect, and then trust in Jesus. Never says that. It's offered to all. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's so wonderful. This message is so inclusive. There's nobody this morning in church that's excluded from that word, everyone. We're all in everyone. We're all within the category of the invitation. And that's wonderful. But you know, along with the the wonderfulness of it, is the urgency of it, because... It does mean this, that if you've never yet called upon the name of the Lord, then you really need to do it now. Because the gospel invitation is going out this morning. And you're being asked, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on him as Lord, as God, Victor, Master. Believe that what he did on the cross he did for you and that he has risen to make you right with God because only if you have done that if you've called on the name of the Lord will you be saved and there friends there's nothing more urgent than doing that there's nothing that you can fill your mind up just now that's more important than focusing on this truth and responding to it one day you will stand before Jesus as judge And he's not going to ask you if you were a good neighbor or if you gave to charity or if you came to church quite a lot. But you'll be known by the fruit of having received Jesus as Lord. And this morning, the word of God calls you to turn to Jesus in faith and receive him as he truly is as Lord and to be open about that to let others know that you are a follower of Jesus. And on the basis of God's word, on his authority, you will know you have been saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel, how straightforward it is. Its response is not complex. Lord, our wills are stubborn. And we put off what we ought to do immediately. And we pray, Lord, that you will melt hearts this morning. And bring those of us who know we need Jesus but have never trusted him. To the cross. That empty cross. And Lord, may we trust in him as Lord. For we ask in his name.
Amen. We keep the law not to be right with God, but because we're grateful to God. Uh, We find the gospel producing within us a spirit of thankfulness. So we're going to sing our last hymn uh, in that vein. My heart is filled with thankfulness to him who bore my pain, who plumbed the depths of my disgrace and gave me life again, who crushed my curse of sinfulness and clothed me with his light and wrote his law of righteousness with power upon my heart. We stand and sing. Thank you.